Welcome back, everybody, to another to another episode of the No Filter Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Delitsky. Pleasure to be back here with all of you today. So, as uh, the running theme for the past couple of weeks on the podcast has been the war in Ukraine, I wanted to kind of shift lenses a little bit, shift our focus uh, in this week's podcast. So, quick history: when the world of strategy first came onto the scene in the height of the Cold War. So many people obviously were writing about nuclear weapons and the threat of nuclear weapons and the like. And some of the great authors, Herman Kahn, Bernard Brody, books you know that adorn my bookshelves, they write with a very cool rationality about things like nuclear weapons and nuclear Armageddon. And this was subject to a lot of critique by both academics and just regular people in the world, that strategic studies didn't care about human life. It didn't care about morality. It was just this this uh, someone someone commented on Herman Kahn's book on thermonuclear war that it was a moral tract on how to get away with mass murder, and although people dealt with those criticisms at the time, to be fair, they didn't really subside completely. It is very hard to talk about war with cool rationality, and at the same time, remember that when you talk about war, you're talking about the lives that the institution of war affects. There is a human dimension about it. As we write now, nowadays and discuss the possibility of, of a nuclear war, or at least the Russian conflict escalating to the nuclear threshold, we obviously have to deal with it and we have to talk about it, but we should remember that we're talking about the lives of hundreds of millions of people that might die in a fallout of nuclear Armageddon. And it's oftentimes very hard for us to remember that. And I, as someone who has invested a lot of time and more importantly money into books on war, it is, it is very humbling to consciously experience a conflict like this for the first time in my life and to try to balance that that duality of recognizing that wars need to be won oftentimes they need to be fought and at the same time remembering that there are humans involved that are humans that are dying uh, as the war and as conflict progresses and so today we're going to get a taste of the human side of things we're going to be reminded about what the war is is all about and what's happening to the people on the front lines. So today we have not one, not three, but two guests on the No Filter podcast. These are people I like to call friends uh, who are current students at my alma mater, Yeshiva University. Recently, Yeshiva University ran a humanitarian mission, if I, if I got that term correct, uh, to Europe to help with some of the refugees shortly before the Jewish holiday of Purim. It took place uh, a week or so ago, I don't remember. Uh, for obvious reasons, I don't remember when it took place. But today, I have with me on the show two friends who were there in Europe, one Mr. Benny Federer and one Mr. Ellie Sandhouse, to discuss their trip. Benny and Ellie, welcome to the No Filter Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having us. Apologies about the sound quality, but, you know, we're going to make this work. It's great. Wonderful. Thanks for having us, Phil. Of course. So... I guess just tell the people who aren't familiar with what this trip was about, tell them what it was. Tell us about this trip, what the basic aim of it was, who ran it, any and all details. Okay, so this trip was very last minute. We got an email Wednesday night saying that YU was going to have a trip and they were opening applications. And then by Thursday night, we were told we were accepted. And then by Sunday night, we left. Sunday morning, we left. So 
this all happened in the span of a couple of days. And the, the plan going in was that we didn't have a plan. You know, to quote Dr. Erica Brown, one of the leaders of the trip, it was an evolving story. <laughs> and we were pretty much tasked with doing whatever came up and was required from us. Um, so yeah, just add in on that. <laughs> um, it really hit me Thursday night after I found out I got accepted. Um, it was a whirlwind of a Wednesday and Thursday afternoon because yeah. it was like, am I doing this? Am I not? Um, you know, the whole goal, at least for me personally, was that this hit me. Um, Phil, you mentioned in your intro that, uh, you know, this was the first time you had kind of experienced war. And like for me as well, um, first time I had ever kind of heard um, anything like this happening in my lifetime, uh, immediately donated money to it, which is rare for me because I'm a student. <laughs> I don't have much of that. Um, I donated coats and boots. And then I saw it was a Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday evening, um, an email about this. And I was like, this is the next step. This is what I want to do. Um, I applied quickly. Uh, they, they threatened that there would be interviews. Apparently there were too many applicants to follow through on that threat. Um, and by Thursday afternoon, I found that I was going, I was driving Thursday night. Um, I was like, I'm going to Vienna, Austria in 48 hours. I don't know. I had pictures of, to be honest, I had pictures of, I don't remember where I got this from. Um, like, a, a large warehouse with cots on the floor and like people with, with nothing. Um, and I was like, that's, that's what I'm going into. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's very funny because we really didn't know what to expect. So we were kind of anticipating the worst case scenario, which would have been, you know, we were expecting soup kitchens and hostels. Right. Right. And, you know, thankfully, the, the Viennese community is so generous and so prosperous, and they really have been taking such phenomenal care of these refugees. And to, just to see the, the compassion that humans are capable of is so empowering and, and so, so enlightening. Wow. So, so you know. It's amazing how this trip kind of paralleled war. The unexpected happens at every turn, and things move very, very quickly. Um, so that's that, that's amazing. Kudos mm -hmm. to the two of you for deciding to go and, and pick up your bags and, and go. Obviously, it's much easier for our, for you two to pick up your bags and, and leave your home country to go somewhere else, as opposed to what as opposed to what these uh, these refugees had. So I was wondering. I know that you know I saw some video that was shared on social media that you guys interacted with a lot of children, a lot of you know children who were refugees. Um, did you speak to them at all? Did they seem to understand what was going on? Were they aware of the war taking place? What was your kind of feel from the children that you guys interacted with? So I can tell you um, on a few levels, um, on a few levels, the answer is yes. On a few levels, the answer is no. Um, just starting with yes, where it's very clear. Um, things as simple as the following. On the first day, we were in Vienna Monday um, towards the... I guess the middle or end of that day, we saw our first hotel where refugees were staying because they weren't staying in warehouses or anything with that. They, they, the Viennese community put them up in hotels. Um, still not home and still not ideal, but better than I had 
pictured for sure. Mm. Um, and we were playing with kids on the first day and obviously we brought lollipops cause that makes everyone happy. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so we were giving out lollipops and a little girl, probably six or seven um, was talking to one of the, one of the young ladies from YU and they were drawing together. And uh, this little girl got a blue lollipop. And then Ellie, did you hand her the next color or no? Someone else did. Somebody else did. Someone, someone yeah. else did. Um, she asked for another and it was yellow. And she hold, held up her two lollipops and said, Ukraine, or you, some, you know, something that I clearly understood was Ukraine. So she knew, she knew enough to know her, her country's colors. Um, and one other, I think, poignant anecdote about that. Um, we were there for the Jewish holiday of Purim, where the, the book of Esther is read. The book of Esther starts with, in the days of Ahasuerus, um, he, was, he was the king who wanted to, or eventually would look to potentially wipe out the Jewish people, um, I heard a refugee child say in the days of Putin. Wow. That was, so that was a pretty, wow. it was, it was so sad and moving to hear, like I heard kids, their nursery rhymes were about the situation and the war and having to leave home and just hearing how kids cope with with tragedy and trauma was was so eye-opening sure and just like one specific anecdote that i remember was i met this girl i was standing online for goulash and rice at a soup kitchen and uh I, the girl next to me her name is miriam she's 18 years old and she has a mother and a father and a little brother and a little sister. And two weeks ago, she was forced to flee Ukraine and her father was drafted to the Ukrainian army. So her mother wasn't sure what to do. Should she remain in Ukraine or go with her children to Vienna? And her mother ended up deciding that she needed to support her husband more. And she stayed in Ukraine and tasked Miriam with taking care of her younger brother and sister. So right now, it's funny, I'm, I'm saying this as an anecdote and it feels like something that happened a long time ago, but this is going on right now. Miriam yeah. is in Vienna by herself with her little brother and little sister taking care of them. And she's just a teenager while her father's at war and her mother's alone in, in Ukraine. And it's just, it's crazy. And, and Miriam expressed to me that she doesn't know the next time she's going to see her parents. Right. She doesn't know the next time she's going to go home. She doesn't know if she's going to go home. And that, that really, really hit me. Well, that's, I mean, I'm sure this is the case for both of you. You know, you're, you're telling, you know, these stories and, you know, at least for me, you know, for to who had great grandparents who survived and went through the war, uh, you know, and 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 uh, survived the Holocaust. And you read these stories, you read these books of families really not knowing whether or not they'll see each other, and you just oh, they're that's way back when in in, in the 30s and 40s, and and now you know it's 2022, and you got to you know almost read textbook what it's like to be to be separated from your family. That's that's really it's chilling almost, but but uh, it's it's. Uh, so I guess that leads me to my to my next question, which is all right. So so that was the children. Obviously, you know these children, you know, are going to grow up very quickly, uh, being in being in this situation. 
what was your feeling from the parents, from the older people? Was there, what, 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 was, what was their, you know, number one emotion? Was it one of anger? Was it one of frustration? Were they just trying to n- not really think about the invasion? They were more so just, all right, let me just take care of my children right now. I'm not going to harbor this resentment. What, what was the emotions you felt from, from the adults in the room? So I'll, I'll start off with this one that I noticed there was a very wide variety of responses from the adults and some people were, were more angry, but the overwhelming majority was this sense of hopelessness. At least that, that's the, that's the, the sentiment that I got. Hmm. There was just this hopelessness that they all just had to literally pack up their lives and flee and the adults w- were much more difficult, in my opinion, to interact with than the children, sure. because the adults really expressed their feelings of helplessness, and which is why I think that we primarily were working with the children, mm. because it was a fascinating phenomenon that we noticed when we were helping the kids and making the kids smile, the parents were looking on and that was making them feel regain this, this hope. And it was through the kids that we really managed to get through to the adults and reinstill this, this feeling of, of hope. Um, I would, yeah. Amongst the adults, definitely no uniform emotion. Um, the first adult I encountered, first adults I encountered was in the basement of the first hotel we were at. Um, and, you know, I was just getting water because um, up till that point, I had only seen the kids. They had set up like where the kids were playing and hanging out on the first floor. And then the basement had the food and drinks. Um, the first adults I kind of saw, it was just they they were not sure what what was happening, um, understandably so. Right. A lot to sort out. I think confused was was how I kind of, if I had to bunch it all together, was how I would see most of the adults in the first few days and maybe over the course of the trip um, was confused and overwhelmed. Um, Sure. You know, goes without saying, a whole new country without a set home yet, uh, a whole lot of uncertainty, and that's a big, it's a heavy undertaking for anyone. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine. I mean, we we have in my family, you know, all of my family is out of Europe already. But we have you know some friends who are in Ukraine actually, um, and just hearing from them, at least when the initial invasion began, of just not knowing what to do. You know, you kind of just you have this sense of self preservation. You want to flee as far as you can, but on the other hand, how, how do you leave home? How do you pick up and go? Um, so I imagine that sentiment was there. Um, I guess one one final question was just, you know, you walk away from this remarkable trip, a trip that I think both of you would agree you would have never, you would have hoped never to have taken. You know, you hope that never you would have a country invade another one's sovereignty and a humanitarian crisis like this happen. But, you know, such is the world that we live in. And so I'm curious, you know, how did this impact your view on the war, you know, going forward now after you've had this experience? Are you... You know, I, I hate to bring it back to policy, which is, you know, most of my listeners are, are very interested in. I, I, but after this after this experience, 
Are you sitting here ready to campaign for direct U.S. involvement in the war to end the crisis? Um, are you fundraising for, for the refugees continually to make sure that they get all the help that they need? Um, you know, what are your kind of after action thoughts about, about this trip? Yes, I, I can start, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, to be honest, my, my policy views are, are pretty, um, I, I, I haven't looked at that trip through that realm much at this point, sure. to be honest, I'm still digesting um, a lot of good that I saw certainly. And, and a lot of, um, things that were also a little disconcerting, obviously, um, in terms of policy, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm knowledgeable enough to talk about it at this point. We're, so we're definitely fundraising, though. Um, we fundraised $75,000 when we were there. $75,000 that we fundraised, and a, an anonymous matched. donor do, uh, promised to match that. Wow. And so yeah. what that does at this point in time is is that that feeds, it's costing them about $110,000, I think. Approximately. Um, a week to, to... Just to feed them. Feed the to refugees. Feed, feed all the refugees. To in, feed the refugees. In Vienna. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't cover living costs. That doesn't cover basic necessities. That's just food. Costs $100,000, upwards of $100,000 a week. So in terms, of, in terms of our action item, I think that's that. And had you told me um, before I went on this trip that I, I think what is now our, my, my biggest contribution is my ability to speak about this experience and frankly fundraise for it. If you had told me that, that would be my biggest uh, contribution, um, I would have been a little disappointed. I, I now see where that is so necessary and why, why that is so important. And I do not view it as disappointing at all. It is just reality that these, these people need, this, these people in the Viennese community need money to continue funding, helping these refugees. If I may plug, Phil, do you mind? By all means. www.yu.edu forward slash feed refugees. Please go donate whatever you can. Every single dollar goes towards helping the Ukrainian refugees in Vienna. Wow. Well, thank you both. This is, uh, this was great. I mean, I definitely, I mean, my viewers won't be able to see your faces, but the faces of the two of you when you guys are speaking about the children is definitely something that, you know, I, I got a glimpse of, you know, how important the work was that you guys did over there. So kudos to you guys. Um, you know, let's hope that, let's hope that we don't have to run another one, uh, very soon. And let's hope that we can get, uh, get back to a, a peaceful world order so thank you both for coming Amen. i appreciate it thank you phil thanks for having me thank you phil sure you got it well this has been another episode of the no filter podcast and until next time have a great day